And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Stanley Cup playoffs are officially underway, and the Vancouver Canucks are on the board. Brand new VanCast for you. Jay Patton Drancer, I'm in Vancouver. Thomas is in Edmonton. He was there in the building last night to see the Canucks' first postseason victory, or first playoff, official playoff victory in five years. Drancer, uh, full credit to the Vancouver Canucks. Uh, you know, there were so many questions about the St. Louis team and where it was uh, in the bubble, and, you know, could they flip that switch? And on night one, I think the answer is that uh, the Canucks uh, were able to handle everything that the St. Louis Blues threw at them. The Blues may get better. They probably will get better as this series went along. But, man, don't take anything away from the Vancouver Canucks and their performance and their effort and ultimately the result. They were the better team over 60 minutes last night. No question. And they got outshot, but it didn't really matter. The Blues just weren't inside them. Like It, it felt like the Canucks were you know, generating more, generating better chances, preventing the Blues from getting you know, into that high slot. I think about that third period, that first five minutes of the third period where the Blues had, I think, four consecutive heavy shifts. Four shifts played in the Canucks end of the rink. And the moment that really stands out to me is David Perron sort of gets position on Chris Tanev and, and tries to skate into the high slot. And Tanev, at the very last moment, manages to poke the puck away from Perron as Tanev is liable to do as the defensive savant you know he's been over the 10 years of his NHL career and to me that was just emblematic of this stretch where the Blues seemed to elevate their game seemed to be taking it to the Canucks the Canucks spent five minutes to open a tied third period without the puck and at the end of the day all they had to show for it was a couple of point shots and and for me that was just such a difference from the Canucks team we saw before the break uh, that's what allowed the Canucks to weather a storm because for all the talk about what Blues team would show up, I think the Blues showed up. I thought they had a really good game. I thought they were mean and rough and committed. I thought they were passionate. I thought they had intensity the whole night. And for all of that, the Canucks come out of the 60 minutes with a 5-2 victory and a 5-2 victory that I think they deserved. I I'm I'm actually really impressed. Yeah, and look, twice the Canucks took leads. They got the starts that they wanted, but, you know, the champs were heard from. They responded. How weird was that? Like, I can't ever recall seeing such mirror image goals as Horvat and Perron yeah. on the power play. Like, that was kind of freaky, actually, just how similar they were. But, you know, twice the Blues stepped up and tied the game, and you thought, uh-oh, you know, if you're a Canuck fan, like, here are the St. Louis Blues. They're going to lean on the Canucks now. And you talk about the start of that third period, 
And, man, I've been impressed with the third periods for the Canucks. I was impressed the other night against Minnesota, you know, down a goal, and how they didn't veer from their system. They stuck with it, and ultimately they generated the goal that they needed. And who scored it? Oh, yeah, the captain. Uh, And last (laughs) night, you know, Horvat was going again, but... You know, I just I like the fact that there is this confidence. Uh, it starts with Markstrom when he's dialed in. Uh, but you go back three games here, and from the end of the second period on, including 11 seconds of overtime, you know the Canucks have outscored their opponents seven nothing. So you know they don't seem to fear third periods. Uh, Markstrom has been at or near his best in those third periods when needed. And, you know, the Canucks difference makers have stepped up in different different ways, whether it's at evens, whether it's on the power play. And let's be honest, I, I think we have to be. I mean, as good a story as Troy Stetcher was, that was a shitty, shitty goal uh, for Jordan Bennington to give up in that situation. But, hey, put pucks on net and good things happen. Yeah. the I want to I want to touch on the mirror images because you're right. That was, you know, being John Malkovich level, like glitch in the matrix <laughs> sort of you know, deja vu uh, you know, in hockey form. But I also think it speaks to something that never would have happened. Like, you never would have had mirror image goals like that on the power play five, six years ago because people played different types of power plays. Some teams played an umbrella. Some teams played a spread. Now, everyone plays one three one. It's the Adam Oates effect, right? Everyone is copying the Washington Capitals. And in the modern NHL, it's not about what you're doing on the power play. It's who you have doing it, right? And the Canucks have Elias Pettersson, Quinn Hughes, and JT Miller up high with Bo Horvat in that bumper spot where he is absolutely lethal. I loved the rotation from Miller and Hughes. Like when Hughes sent the primary assist pass to Bo Horvat, I had to watch it again to see who'd made the pass. And that's me watching where the game is a lot slower from, you know, 100 feet away in at the top of the 200 level in Rogers' place. If you're confusing me, a neutral observer, I, I don't even w- want to try and empathize with what the Blues penalty killers were, were feeling. Pedersen obviously scores just a, a beauty goal with one of those one-timers that he unleashes that's, you know, a whisper from perfection and hits a post on another very, very similar shot on a, on a subsequent power play. But the power play I liked the best from the Canucks by a lot, even though it was the lowest leverage, was the 5-2 goal after Alex Pietrangelo took that late penalty. And I liked it so much because the Canucks just ruthlessly worked the puck around, right? There was probably 18, 19 continuous passes around the edge. And the Blues, down two, with time winding down, had to rush well out of position. The Canucks just started completing these ridiculous cross-seam passes that you can never do in a normal environment, but when the other team's chasing the lead and shorthanded, uh, they're all out of sorts. And that JT Miller goal, you know, by the time it's scored, is just an absolute gimme. But I just thought that was a level of ruthless, like, veteran quality, you know, um, just know-how that for a power play built around a 24-year-old, a 22-year-old, a 21-year-old, a 20-year-old, and JT Miller uh, was just extraordinarily impressive to me. I mean, I mean, I really, I really was watching that with a certain level of awe, just in the in the raw cynicism from a team really playing their first traditional playoff game as a core group. I was honestly so impressed by that. It might have been the thing I was most impressed with the whole game. Look, we all marveled when the Canucks scored five power play goals in Nashville in November. I mean, five in a game is nuts, although 
the way the Canucks owned Nashville on the power play this year, maybe it wasn't all that surprising. But so five in a regular season game, yeah, it was crazy. But three in a playoff game against the Stanley Cup champs in the opener where you're trying to make a statement for this team that, you know, thinks maybe it can run you out of the building by being physical and mean and nasty, as you talked about. Like, the power play last night just provided this canvas for the Canucks mm. artists to go to work. Lovely, and yeah. damn, they went to work. And so, you know, now all of a sudden it's one loss. But, you know, this is what I love about the playoffs is it's adjustment time for the Blues, who, by the way, were without Alex Steen and without... Ivan Barbashev, who are two of the best penalty killers. Like, mm-hmm. And so, you know, for a team that gives up three power play goals on opening night of a series, uh, you do wonder about... Barbashev's not going to be available. He's sort of on the Jordy Ben plan, uh, you know, and isn't even back in the bubble yet. But Steen was listed as day-to-day, but we'll see if they're able to augment their penalty kill or if that's an area that, you know, if the Blues are going to continue to take penalties. And look, Craig Berube, I can sense it. I've been on most of his Zooms here since we knew that it was going to be the Blues. There's a real frustration building with him because it just it feels like he's harping on the same things game after game after game, and either his players don't want to listen to him or they can't listen to him or whatever the case, but discipline and penalty kills have been an issue for the Blues along with third periods, and you look at last night's game and like, check, check, check. I mean, all those things came home to roost for the St. Louis Blues. Yeah, you know, the sounds of the game, I've been sort of talking about this a lot, right? Obviously. And the sort of theory that I've hatched is the louder team wins most games. And that was not the case last night because the Blues bench wouldn't shut up. But the Blues bench wouldn't shut up mostly at the referees. I I don't feel like they were talking to each other a ton. It wasn't like the Golden Knights or or the Calgary Flames, two of the teams that are just super vocal with one another the whole game. They were just on the refs the whole night. Like it was, I, I tweeted it at one point you know, a joke and I made sort of a joke about my love for coconut chocolate almonds and some blues fans, you know, some blues fans in my feed were saying like when a writer's a fan or tagging the athletic and be like, this is pretty biased. Like the athletic cares. The athletic lets me write articles that are basically 18 different variations of the word fuck. Like they very much don't care about my Trader Joe's almond joke. Um, But I was honestly just being factual and sort of pointing out something that was massively apparent in building, which was just the the Blues worked the refs all night. They were upset about everything, the whole game. And, you know, it was an interesting thing to me, especially after the Pietrangelo penalty late, because it just seemed like they'd maybe gotten a little bit off their game. That, that, that at least in terms of a, a certain level of discipline and focus, that was one area where the Canucks, I think, had a pretty big edge last night and, and an edge that proved decisive. Uh, but, you know, as you mentioned, the the power play and the three goals and what that means as the series adjusts, I do think finding a way to play a little bit more between the whistles, right? Finding a way to be a little bit more focused, that has to be a priority for the Blues. And I do wonder if they're going to be able to do the intimidation thing at quite the level they'd like in a world where, you know, sure, David Perron probably could have got 10 for a variety of instances during the game yesterday, to be totally honest with you. <laughs> Multiple Antoine, choice, yes. To, to, to be clear, Antoine Roussel could have as well. Sure, um, yep. But, you know, despite the fact that, you know, there, there were some things let go, you know, the calculus, if the Canucks can continue to be this dangerous on the power play, and if the referees continue to call, you know, some of what's going on out there, uh, you do wonder if that's 
going to have to cause the Blues to revisit the, you know, Mame, Pedersen, and Hughes game plan, which they obviously brought to game one. All right, let's get into sort of the game within the game and the matchups, and, you know, mm-hmm. you charted also closely. And again, I come back to the fact that I think the Blues will be better as this series goes along, but I look at a night like last night and. Absolutely, the Canucks can and will be better five on five. Like the power yeah. play was daggers, but I mean, there have been very few nights in Elias Pettersson's short NHL career where he's been on the wrong end of the shot shares the way he was. Like the Canucks wrote shot nine nothing with Pettersson on the ice at evens. Yeah, and and seven nothing in eight forty six head to head against Ryan O'Reilly. Right, like that's. I mean, Ryan O'Reilly was amazing last night. Right, like that's the other thing yeah. that the Blues got. The Blues got the absolute best game from the absolute best defensive center in the sport. And it didn't matter. I mean, that's an insane thing to reflect on, right? Uh, I loved my, one of my favorite moments was Ryan O'Reilly when he beat out that icing from long range. And you could just see him like he's got this supercomputer, this pattern recognition supercomputer. And he sees Hughes and he takes a couple strides and he realizes Hughes has been on too long and doesn't have burst and just turns on the jet. Like, what a great play. There are not a lot of players who can compute information that quickly. Pedersen, by the way, is one of them. But that was just awesome. Like, I, lo- I know it was a quiet play, but it was just fantastic. Um, and just speaks to the type of threat that Ryan O'Reilly offers in some of those smaller areas of the game, right? He's just an unbelievable player. Uh, when you also consider that, you know, Bo Horvat got the Braden-Shen matchup, right? And they did okay. I mean, that was that was about a draw. But, you know, put it together and you've got a situation where the Canucks were outshot 3-9, to nine, 5 on 5, in terms of the matchups in the top six. And actually did a lot better in terms of their bottom six, right? Like, uh, I mean, the Sutter line got outshot, but Sutter overall... Uh, had a really good night. Uh, like Sutter's minutes against the Shen line were better than Horvat's. And, you know, the Beagle line, I thought, played really well. They played a limited role, obviously. But, you know, I didn't think they were out of place in the shifts that they battled the, you know, uh, excuse me, the Braden Shen line. Um, I thought they did okay against the Robert Thomas line. I mean, truly, that was uh, all you can ask for from your bottom six, really, for the Canucks. And the fact that they came out the way that they did, you know, in five-on-five, the Blues were the team that controlled the higher rate of, you know, possession. Like, they they ran the flow of play at five-on-five, but, you know, scoring chances were even, right? Um, By expected goals, the Blues were ahead, but by, you know, a whisper, just like by .54 in terms of, you know, the overall sort of edge that they had by expected goal share. So, yeah, I mean, I think the Canucks, considering the night that they got from Pedersen, to come out in a draw, basically, in terms of quality looks, five on five, I, I, unbelievable. I mean, that's honestly wild to me. And I do think Pedersen's going to have more in the tank to attack O'Reilly with. If the Canucks bottom six can play to 80% of that level going forward, you know, even 75% of that level. If they can give the most of what they got in game one, um, that changes this series and that changes my calculus in breaking it down. All right. We have to go back and conduct sort of this forensic audit of where the hell was JT Miller uh, ahead of 
the hockey game uh, created uh, a remarkable stir, as you could imagine, in the 10 minutes leading up to face-off in Canuck Nation and on Canuck Twitter uh, when the team's leading scorer was listed as a scratch. We'll get into all that in a sec, but uh, first things first, got to tell our loyal listeners about Manscaped, which is just launched here in Canada. For those of you listening in this country, you can be one of the first Canadians to experience their life-changing products, and that's why Manscaped has redesigned the electric trimmer. The Manscaped engineering team has perfected the greatest hair trimmer ever created, and they have the new Lawnmower 3.0. And I'm hearing that uh, we may get our hands on a lawnmower uh, ourselves, and then we'll be able to, uh, you know, give testimonials ourselves. Uh, so we're looking forward to uh, getting a lawnmower. Uh, you were talking about a whisper. Uh, they've upgraded the lawnmower to a 7,000 RPM motor with a quiet stroke technology. And let's not forget about the charging stand. You show your mower off loud and proud because this intelligently designed stand is convenient. It's a charging dock powered by USB. And if you're listening to me speak right now, I want you to experience it firsthand for yourself. So get 20% off and free shipping with the code THEATHLETIC20 at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com. And use the code THEATHLETIC20. And for a limited time, subscribers get not one but two free gifts. Yeah, two free gifts. The Shed Travel Bag, a $39 value, and the patented high-performance anti-chafing Manscaped boxer briefs. So go to manscaped.com today and use the code THEATHLETIC20. So where was JT Miller during warm-up? Yeah, I'm. I'm not really sure. Uh, unfit to warm up, J. Pat. It's the unfit to play. It's the unfit to warm up era. That's where we're at. The, you know, obviously the rumors that the warm up injury. Who knows? I, I mean, the. I didn't. I, I feel so dumb. But the fact of the matter is that you know I'm. I'm trying to watch both teams' line rushes because we don't have a ton of coverage uh, in terms of bodies here in the bubble and. I wanted to make sure that I'm, you know, being a team player for JR, Jeremy Rutherford of the uh, Athletic St. Louis. And so, you know, I sort of pay attention to the line rushes for the team I don't know as well, right? Uh, a little bit more closely. And, you know, I, I guess I looked up and I did, I just didn't realize. Like, JT Miller's such a mainstay that I guess I took it for granted. And, you know, I've been sort of trying to warn people not to lean too heavily on right. the... Uh, warm-up sheet, right? Like, I've seen a few too many errors, and I, I've noticed people outside the bubble getting burned a little bit. Uh, Gord Miller, obviously, but, but Pat Steinberg, like, a lot of a lot of people. And, and the thing is, is they're getting burned because they're the most detail-oriented reporters. Like, I'm not criticizing anybody, right? Like, if you're paying attention to the roster sheet the way I know you and I do, J-Pat, um, that's good. Like, that means you're really, really detailed and know where to look for things, Right. So I, I'm not criticizing anybody. I'm just saying that the level of they've been a little bit wonkier, a little bit slower, a little bit less reliable than we're used to in the playoffs in the regular season in normal times. And, you know, just just a wild little spot of confusion. Travis Green wouldn't elaborate on it. Um, you know, I, I'm sure we'll get the story at some point and hopefully it's funny and, and not too serious. But JT Miller didn't look worse for wear. Uh, you know, the blood pressure of Canucks fans in the moments leading up to the playoff game. However, I do think that spiked pretty significantly. Yeah, I mean, everything from some sort of two-touch soccer injury before the game to bad sushi in the bubble, who knows, whatever the case. <laughs> he ends up playing more than 20 minutes and has a goal and an assist. So if that was a, a sick or an under-the-weather JT Miller, 
you know, you couldn't tell by watching him. And again, a night uh, for the Canucks' best players, and uh, he's one of them. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, concern early on, but uh, people breathing easier now that the Canucks have this one nothing lead after a 5-2 win over the St. Louis Blues. Uh, are, are we making too much of the fact, like, has Bo Horvat taken his game to another level, or do you just think this is a guy that is relishing this matchup against Ryan O'Reilly and the Stanley Cup champs and, you know, feeling good, obviously, about himself and his team's play? Like, what do we attribute to, you know, because, look, you and I have been on top of this, that he's sort of morphed into a power play ace, but five on five, his contributions were lacking from sort of Christmas time on. Well, he gets a massive five-on-five goal in Game 4 against Minnesota to force overtime and then, uh, you know, inside out on Vince Dunn last night. Like, highlight real stuff that's going to live on in the lore of, you know, the Canucks for years and years and years. So, what do we make of sort of Bo's performance right here in the last couple of games? Bo Horvat's a very, very good player, right? There's no question about that. And, you know, I think his season actually was criticized pretty significantly, I thought, considering what he does for this club. Just because... There was always something weird going on with his splits that was going to normalize. You know what I mean? Like, can he score at home? Can he score at even strength? Can he score at even strength on the road? Like, it's just like there was always something glaring. You know, like, Bo Horvat's been 25 games without scoring on a Tuesday night against, you know, like, there was always just something weird in his splits. And I'm not saying that that was, you know, uh, unfair criticism. Like, it wasn't. It's just that, you know it was just such a weird year for him. Don't you think in terms of those, like there was always something going on now, Bo Horvat on the ice to this point in the playoffs were five games in, right? The Canucks have outscored their opponents six to one with Horvat on the ice. That works. Uh, that, that That's, that's going to help. Um, that's not going to last though. Right. That on the, that's, that's goal differential has been driven by, you know, nine, eight, zero goaltending at five on five, 17% on a shooting rate. Um, you know, I don't think we can expect Bo Horvat to continue to just throttle opponents like this. Uh, no, you can't expect anyone to, uh, but that said, it's the playoffs, right? It's not the sustainable business. This is the get it done business, right? Uh, this is the get it done time of year and Horvat's getting it done. Uh, while he's been fortunate to some extent, you know, I like a lot of what I'm seeing. Like, I like the shot rate. I like the, you know, overall uh, attempt rate. I think he's generated a fair bit. You know, I, I think he's definitely outperforming what you'd expect of him by a little, but but not by a ton, really. Uh, it's just that, you know, the overall bounces based on, you know, the percentages are, have definitely been in his favor. But that doesn't change the fact that playing a matchup role now in, you know, and... and I guess that's the one other thing is that the Canucks have gone with Pedersen a little bit more straight up in the playoffs right now than they did during the season. We're not seeing Horvat get fed to the Wolves in quite the same way. We're actually seeing the Canucks lineup deployed uh, in a much more commonplace fashion, right? Like Pedersen battles one of the top two lines as opposed to being, you know, managed a little more carefully. We're not seeing a ton of Jay Beagle checking Ryan O'Reilly. Like, do you remember the Canucks went to that? I think Jay Beagle played like seven minutes head-to-head against Ryan O'Reilly in the first meeting of the season between Yikes. these two clubs in St. Louis. Yeah. Um, and I remember writing that the Canucks had overused their fourth line, and then uh, like three, four days later, Green said, yeah, I probably overused my fourth line in that game. And I, and I was and I remember thinking like, okay, good. <laughs> I'm glad he knows it. <laughs> um, 
but the uh, I'm glad I'm glad I wasn't being unfair. Uh, but the you know I think the overall thing is so so two things. One is bounces have been in Horvat's favor. Two is Horvat's played really well. Three is the Canucks have changed the way they're deploying their forward lines, and that results in more normal sledding for Horvat. Right. So all of a sudden he's not just the guy who plays with Louis Erickson and battles tough minutes. Uh, you know, exclusively the only guy who really plays top of the lineup competition in, in just an obsessive hard match. Now he's being used as a usual second line centerman. And guess what? If you use Horvat like a normal second line centerman, as opposed to this crazy matchup role, the offense is going to come a little bit more frequently because Bo Horvat can score. Bo Horvat can play. Bo Horvat is a really, really good player. And I was glad to see the the warm milk movement is uh, picking up steam online. <laughs> that uh, people that are listening, we, yeah, Louis. we had we had some artwork, <laughs> and, and it was another it was another night. Like you know, Horvat goes off, and I know the first goal is a power play goal, but you know, Louis Erickson just has this incredible ability. Like it really, it's an inane sort of ability to stay out of the way of points, right? Like Horvat yes. and Pearson pick up their points. And, like, we've talked earlier in the year where, you know, Jake Bertanen, he couldn't help himself. Like, anytime he was on the ice and a goal was scored, he figured in the scoring, right? And you pointed that out, that it was a ridiculously high rate. Like, yes. Louis is so far at the other end of the spectrum that this <laughs> offense goes on around him. They win. He contributes. But he's just this warm glass of milk that seems to make Bo Horvat feel, you know, so much more comfortable and so much better about himself. Yeah, it's tremendous. Though he had three shots last night. That was an active stat line for him. Uh, but no, you're right. The the so like let's let's get into it just a little bit, right? Because it's so funny. Sure. Um, four games played, right? For Louis Erickson, all wins, all wins for the Canucks. The adjustment of the playoffs in either bubble to this point. Um, zero points, zero goals, zero assists, no first assists, no second assists, no points. Um, but he's been amazing. Like, and he was really good last night. I thought, I thought his wall cut. Uh, I thought his work on the wall, but especially his work cutting off the top. You know, the Blues are like the Wild a little bit in that their high-low action is a pretty key bread-and-butter part of what they do offensively. And the way that Louis Erickson cuts off the top, he's so smart about it. He's so good at it. And, you know, I just think it makes a huge difference for this this Canucks team. Um, You know, the overall impact that Louis had is to help the Canucks limit what they're giving up in terms of scoring chances to to a pretty preposterous degree. Like, to the point that if you go by expected goal differential 5-on-5, five five, he is ahead of Bo Horvat and Tanner Pearson by 3 or 4%, right? Like, in the playoffs alone. Like, uh, for whatever Love reason, it. for whatever reason, um, Louis Erickson makes games no event. And, and that's extraordinarily helpful. I, I really liked, especially, he had a couple plays where the Blues were pinching down, and he just gets it out of the zone. He always gets it out of the zone. It's never not getting out of the zone. That's what Louis Erickson does, and it's hugely valuable. See, I want to live in a world now, like, when Vertanen scores, it's so loud, and it's become the movement in the city, shotgun Jake, but, look, Jake hasn't looked like a real threat to score. You know, there are thirsty people. I'm suggesting, you know, I don't want to replace shotgun Jake. If Vertanen's able to score, I want a playoff goal. Come on, like, I want to see the city go nuts, but... 
you know, when Louis makes a nice defensive play and clears the puck out of the zone, I just think we should all raise a glass of warm milk and it could sort of become something new here in the playoffs for the fan base. But the problem is everyone's drinking in the playoffs, J-Pat. Maybe it's like a white Russian or something. Like, we need to have some... Ah, yeah, to, okay. There needs to be some booze involved, otherwise everyone's stomach's going to be curdling. Like, it's going to be on you for just legions of Vancouverites going through discomfort during during the playoffs. But look, as quiet as it is around Louis, and as loud as the celebration will be, should we get a shotgun Jake moment in the playoffs? I don't think anything's ever compared, ever, in the history of Canucks playoff hockey to the loud reaction that will occur in the event that we get a clutch Louis Erickson playoff goal. Like, I think the sound will be heard from Rogers' place. Yeah, I'm trying to envision outside of an empty netter. And that would count because it would mean that they were leading and probably sealed the deal. But I just want to see how long it can go. I mean, if Horvath can continue to play at the level he's been, Pearson's picking up points. Like Tanner Pearson's been really good for them uh, in the playoffs as well. And yet there's Louie on the other wing and just avoiding points. Like it's just crazy to me. So it's just one of those things that I I continue to monitor. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about where the Blues go from here because as we said, like I, I think the Canucks saw a pretty good St. Louis team. I, I do think they can get better. So we'll finish up talking about the Blues here in a sec, but we got to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll discuss more about where this goes as far as the series is, is concerned. But first, this message from Indochino. All right, Friday afternoon hockey now. So they move from late night in the bubble on Wednesday to get things going and then the quick turnaround. And we know that back-to-backs are coming on the weekend, Sunday and Monday. But Mandrants are like, what an opportunity for the Canucks. So you, just, you look at where the St. Louis Blues are, and until they win a game in this bubble, that is going to hang over them. And the Canucks have a chance to really, really tighten the screws here with, you know, if they can back up the first win with a second one. Uh, you know, you look at the Blues and the discipline issues and the fact that, you know, Tarasenko still isn't anywhere close to being Vladimir Tarasenko coming off shoulder surgery. And, you know, there are just there are a number of questions that are sort of dogging this St. Louis Blues team. So opportunity knocked, the Canucks answered. And, you know, let's see what Friday afternoon holds. But uh, if you're Craig Berube, like what kind of adjustments do you think the Blues might make as they try to even the score in this thing? You could see them maybe try to fatten their lineup a little bit. Uh, they do have three centermen, for example, on that third line, right? Maybe you try putting one of them down onto that fourth line, it, it, assuming that you don't get Steen, Barbashev, or, or Sammy Blay back, right? Because um, if any of those guys come back, that's a really big deal for the Blues. But Right, they're not mm-hmm. getting Barbashev because he's not in the bubble. Right. We know that. Like so, yes. but, so, but, but Steen but, and Blay are both... Yeah, we don't know, right? Yeah, they're day-to-day. I think. They're day-to-day, or... so... Uh, you know, and, and in the playoffs, I always like to to say it, like every NHL player is Deadpool or Wolverine in terms of their healing capacity <laughs> yeah. in the playoffs for whatever reason. Um, as JT Miller probably proved last night, right? <laughs> so, yeah. you know, I think the... I think the fattening up that bottom six group might be something that the Blues consider, whether it's Sunquist dropping down and, you know, maybe Delarose moving up or, or something sort of cosmetic like that but I mean when you look at how that O'Reilly line played against Pedersen and when you think about the threat posed by that Pedersen line you know in normal times I don't think you can make too many changes like I don't think you can look too hard at adjusting that maybe maybe do you give Robert Thomas I mean Thomas was still amazing like you saw that one rush where he went down and 
you know, hit the teammate who backhanded it wide. I think that was Bozak's chance just wide of Jacob Markstrom early in the game. Like when Robert Thomas gets going, he's incredible. Could you see him maybe uh, supplant Tarasenko or Schwartz on the second line? So the and that's sort of a way of fattening the middle six for the Blues. Like maybe I, I maybe I could see that, but I just don't think I'd make a ton of changes if I was St. Louis. I think the main change I'd be looking to make is just like we need to do more at the net front. We need to get more high quality chances, fewer point shots, and. You know, that at the end of the day, like, there's only so much you can do to coach offense. <laughs> you know, like, that's kind of on the guys. And, you know, other than that, it would just be, we have to be a little more disciplined. Like, we probably have to not talk to the refs so much. We probably can't, you know, I, I actually do want to talk about one moment. One moment where, and it was right before I made the tweet talking about how Quinn Hughes is the best defenseman in the Western bubble. Because he is. Like, I'm sorry. He is. I'm getting a lot of Roman Yossi. It's like, I don't know if you guys watched the series that the Arizona Coyotes had, but Roman Yossi cannibalizes. Like, I had one real concern when voting for the Norris uh, in terms of how I weighted Roman Yossi. I'm not allowed to disclose my ballot, so I won't get too far into it. Um, but... The one concern I have is that Roman Yossi cannibalizes a lot of offense for his team. He takes an inefficient number of point shots. Uh, his zone entries often result in chances for him as opposed to chances for his teammates. Just in a way that you, you never see happen with Quinn Hughes. Like the Canucks take a fair few point shots with Hughes. I thought they especially did early in that wild series. But mostly they're just slowly working the puck around until they get a really high quality chance. And that's sort of what the game looks like with Quinn Hughes. But what really inspired me to make this Quinn Hughes tweet was not just that I'd watched Kale McCarr earlier in the day and was thinking to myself as I watched Hughes surgically deconstruct the the St. Louis Blues defense that, you know, that level of control over the game is completely distinct from what you see McCarr, who's also a tremendous player, do. Um, and that anyone who was arguing that, that, that this is particularly close is not just wrong, but way wrong. And I now feel certain about that, having watched both play four or five times over the past 12 days live. Like, there really just isn't any comparison. Like, Makar is an unbelievable defenseman, does everything you could ever want. Fast. I actually think he's a better passer than Quinn Hughes. And I, when I say that, I mean that with the highest possible praise, because Quinn Hughes is a tremendous distributor. Yeah, wow. But But just the, the smoothness of everything that he tosses around the ice is ridiculous. All of that said, all of that said, Kale McCarr, when he's on the ice for the Avs, it's like they have a world-class, excellent defenseman on the ice, which is great. When when the Canucks have Quinn Hughes on the ice, it allows them to play a different sport, right? Just, it's, it's ridiculous. The gravity there just blows me away, blew me away last night. And the moment where it really keyed in for me was uh, a play on the half wall. And David Perron goes to engage Hughes and you can just tell like, you know, Dave Perron's been around. He's won a Stanley cup. He played in the, he played in two consecutive or two finals in three years. Uh, great player. And he sizes up Hughes and he's like, I'm going to bully the hell out of this kid along the wall. And Hughes sort of <laughs> surprises him with a reverse hit, does a quick stick move to put the pass back. Uh, Perron has to chase him at this point, And he's like, okay, well, I'm going to throw the hit. He, he's playing him way closer than a winger usually would a point man. Hughes just waits, waits, show, throws a little wrist shot right along the ground that ends up getting through traffic. And it actually is a pretty difficult toe save for Bennington, um, you know, short side. And, 
Perron keeps chasing Hughes, right? Like, keeps looking to mess with him, right? He's like, I'm going to finish the hit, come hell or high water. And the play's still going on, and there's a battle in, in on the wall that Perron should be occupying, right? And, and Hughes sees all of this. Like, he sees it. He registers it all, and he just keeps skating away. Not because he's avoiding the contact, but he's pulling Perron out of position. And Perron turns around, realizes what's going on, and hustles back, and Hughes just gently skates back to his spot at the point and I just it like you could have put a Woody Woodpecker soundtrack to it like it was that <laughs> it was that hilarious and I just you know what it reminded me of it reminded me of how Patrick Kane avoids contact in the playoffs like how right. you've never yeah. seen Patrick Kane get lit up and it was just this moment where I thought oh boy like this guy is legitimately playing this game on a different level entirely than everyone else on the ice right now and there are 10 elite players on the ice right now you know it, it honestly, it just blew me away. Like it really did. And that moment, I just thought encapsulated encapsulated everything that you know can take your breath away sometimes about watching Quinn Hughes. Just all those little subtle things that allow him to win battles as a smaller man, and then think the game. You know, play chess when even the best chess masters in the world are playing checkers. Truly amazing. And I loved Hughes' response post-game when he was sort of asked about oh, the, all awesome. the tension, particularly from, from Perron. And we saw it. There, you know, there were battles all over the ice. And, and he said, I, I guess I should see that as a, a sign of respect that yeah, you know, they're, they're targeting me. And, and yes, you should. Absolutely. Uh, that's how he should look at it, that uh, teams are game planning for him as a 20-year-old rookie who's uh, you know, just driving everybody uh, on the other side nuts with uh, his performances and his, his ability to, to drive play and obviously to produce points. Uh, final order of business here on the program and that is you mentioned it the last time we recorded uh, and it had just dropped and I hadn't had a chance to read it but I certainly did and I hope everybody else has now because I mean look this is an athletic vehicle of course we're going to use mm-hmm. it to promote uh, pieces uh, and the VIPs demand unique content that isn't available anywhere else and look we know what harm is capable of delivering and he continues to crush it but his piece with Travis Green about the use of analytics got to a point and look we've had our fun talking about Travis Green and how he's in our head trying to deliver the perfect question and we've tried to break him down at the podium (laughs) and you know all that kind of stuff for him to open up to harm the way he did about his approach to analytics his use of analytics and to provide examples and I thought pretty specific examples Mm -hmm. that like I just don't think Travis has ever really been that willing to sort of peel back the uh, the curtain, if you will, a uh, terrific read. Like, if you haven't had a chance, if you put it aside and you thought you're going to get to it eventually, like, make sure you read it because it really is like some really cool insight into uh, sort of how far Travis Green has come as a coach, some of the things that he has done. It sort of explains some of his decisions and decision making. Uh, just kudos to Harm. I mean, he delivers the piece, but I have to give Travis Green credit for opening up. And I think, like, you know a little bit more of the backstory than I do, but. Uh, this was done during COVID times, was it? Maybe Harm got Travis sort of a, a relaxed Travis Green away from game mode, game coach? Yeah, I think he got, he definitely got hiatus Travis Green. And then, you know, Harmon and I have a very different approach to content and to life, right? Uh, if I have an idea for a piece, I'm like, let's go, let's go, let's write it. And Harmon's like, why don't we wait for this time? Like Harmon's very disciplined. <laughs> Harmon is the Canucks and I am the St. Louis Blues. I'm like, no, 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 we have a good idea. Let's write it. We'll come up with other good ideas. It's fine. Um, that's just sort of my mentality. 
Harmon's a genius. Like, saving that for this moment, right? Especially because I think we've learned a lot more about, and Green has talked a lot more, about what type of work him and his coaching staff put in behind the scenes as they geared up for this playoffs. Like, when I talk about that five-minute stretch in the third period where the Canucks kept the Blues to the outside despite the Blues playing, you know, as hard as they could and generating tons of zone time, like, the Canucks would have broken down and given up not just one, but probably multiple five-alarm scoring chances back in February. Uh, this Canucks team looks like they're made of slightly sturdier stuff anyway, despite having the same personnel. And, you know, Travis talked about it. They did a deep dive. They looked at, you know, I, I think it's something like the 10 best defenses in the league. And what could they learn from that? What could they learn from that without sacrificing, you know, this club's offensive identity that they need to be in place? We've seen them deploy Pedersen straight up now, right? Pedersen plays straight up. That's a thing that they've done all playoffs. Uh, it's made a difference. We've seen some not in series adjustments, but adjustments into how Green seems to be thinking about uh, and structuring and organizing his group. I think it's been a big reason why they've won four in a row, why they're up one nothing against the defending Stanley Cup champions. Like I think there's been a ton of work there. And, you know, people sometimes say that I cover Green favorably. Well, it's because sometimes, you know, it's because I've known for a bit that Green's an NHL head coach who's conversant in expected goal metrics. And because, you know, he works, like he just works. And at the end of the day, you get a lot of time from me if you're bright, open-minded, and work hard, like always. And that does affect how I cover people if I observe that. And sometimes I'm not going to necessarily explain all of that because, you know, I think I do, but I also think that, at the end of the day, people are more interested in talking about the team and the performance and, and on and on. So, look, Harmon did just a tremendous job. Like, speaking of improvement, <laughs> Harmon Dial <laughs> is an unbelievable... Like, Harmon Dial's that Quinn Hughes, Elias Pettersson level. Like, I'm reading that piece and I'm just like, oh, God. Like, <laughs> we've got a generational talent on our hand. This is ridiculous. Um, and, and I thought it was a great read and I, I, I commend Green for opening up. Um, you know, and, and you got to commend the Canucks coaching staff for doing the work during the hiatus, for using it productively, for making the best uh, of a bad situation. And, and got to give credit, too, to the Canucks, you know, R&D department that supports him. Right. Um, you know, it's Aiden Fox who works closely with uh, the coaching staff on, on video and, and combining it with analytics. And obviously that's overseen by John Wall. Uh, those folks deserve credit, too. And, you know, I thought it was a nice insight into an organization that often has been painted as being pretty regressive locally. Um, I, you know, I, I don't know that they're among the most progressive organizations in the league overall, uh, but I do think there's an awful lot of, you know, very careful, very deliberate, um, you know, very forward thinking uh, thought processes occurring at all times in that organization. And, and nice to see some of those folks get credit. Um, nice to see Green talk about it. Yeah, well said. And look, it's impossible to argue with the results right here, right now. Up one nothing on St. Louis after taking care of Minnesota, as you said, a four-game win streak. And they look like a confident bunch. They look like they're having fun as they should. And they look like they give a damn about each other, given the, the situations with Stetcher and Markstrom and McEwen. And, you know, how can that not be a galvanizing moment? And so the, there's just there's sort of good energy around the really Vancouver is. Canucks right here, right now. Now, that can change. The Stanley Cup champ Blues could show up and absolutely, like, pummel them in game two that's playoff hockey but you know right now there's way more questions about the blues than there are about the vancouver canucks who seem pretty locked into the way that they are playing uh they took care of minnesota in that first round and 
you know, it's always interesting to hear a perspective of what the team on the losing end sort of took from a series. Bill Guerin, the general manager of the Minnesota Wild, he's got some decisions to make, obviously, uh, his team moving forward. He joins Mike Russo this week on Straight from the Source at the Athletics. So uh, see what uh, Bill Guerin took away from a defeat at the hands of the Vancouver Canucks. You can check that out on the Athletic site. And check out our comments section for each podcast episode at the Athletic app. And don't forget to rate and subscribe the VanCast on Apple and click on... Our website, theathletic.com slash Canucks, for all of your Vancouver Canuck coverage. Uh, we did this last weekend. Uh, we're here for the people. We are men. If nothing else, transfer. we are men of the people. <laughs> if nothing else. <laughs> we're, working, we're working weekends. Uh, we've been two a week uh, throughout the hockey season and certainly during COVID as well. Uh, we're up in our game. You have to do this part of the season. So uh, we'll deliver another one of these, another VanCast, after Game 2 on Saturday. And then they go back-to-back on Sunday and Monday. So we probably won't... Uh, reconvene until Tuesday when we'll have a ton to digest and take stock of where the series is there but uh, enjoy this one and we'll be back with a new van cast for you early on Saturday uh, after the Canucks and the Blues play game two on Friday afternoon yeah so long as you guys are are interested in listening and downloading and rating and subscribing by the way just a, just a reminder um, we'll keep doing these and, and we'll do extra so long as the Canucks playoff goes on that's just how excited we are to talk hockey as opposed to yeah. name that Canucks <laughs> although although I get a lot of I misname that Canuck in my mentions and, and to all of you um, tweeting that at us we, we, we love you too alright well uh, go enjoy some warm milk here on an off day for the Canucks <laughs> and the St. Louis Blues and we'll see what Friday brings game number two as the Canucks uh, one down 15 to go it's a steep steep hill in front of them but uh, they've got the first one they've taken that first step and uh, we'll see how the defending champs respond in game number two. For Drancer, it's Jay Pat. Thanks for the support here on the VanCast at The Athletic and TheAthletic.com. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.